0: Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorne. From sleep deprivation to psychological torture, there were various ways to root out an alleged witch in Stuart, Britain. But who exactly were the people who were doing that hunting out, and what motivated them in their quest? Today's podcast guest is Professor Marion Gibson, who joined me to talk about the diverse methods and motivations of Britain's witch finders. Today, we're going to be talking all about witch hunters um, who sought to root out supernatural wrongdoing in Britain in around the 16th, 17th centuries. So how common was witch hunting, witch finding, if you want to call it that, in this era in Britain?
2: It was really quite common. You know, lots of people could become witch hunters or witch finders almost by accident because there were thought to be witches in every community. So the idea that you might stumble across one was, was quite a common one. And some people made either a profession or a sort of accidental hobby, if you like, out of looking for them. So it was quite easy to become a witch finder.
0: So you say people became witch hunters by accident. If we're talking about witch hunters, witch finders here, this isn't an official appointment then. This is, this is more of a, a nickname or a self-appointed post. Is that right?
2: Mm, yes, that's right. So you might have heard of the witch finder general, Matthew Hopkins, who is probably the most famous witch finder. He was in in the mid-1640s during the Civil War. And people think, oh, well, because he's called Witchfinder General, that must mean he's an army general and that this is some kind of formal appointment and, you know, he's proceeded up through the military ranks so they've got a a general for this and a general for that. Oh, and they've got a Witchfinder General as well. But it doesn't actually work like that. Even in Hopkins' case, it was a title he gave himself and no doubt it was because he lived in a highly militarised era. You know, there were battles taking place place just down the road from his community so it was kind of natural for people to think of themselves in in military terms and maybe he also meant it that he was he was generally looking for witches it was you know part of his wider role in in community justice and religious policing and so on which he was very keen on. But it was always an amateur role. There there were never professional witchfinders who were appointed by the state or the church. They always appointed themselves to the role. And they did that in different ways, in different contexts, depending on who they were as
0: individuals. Well, that leads us on to my next question, really, which is what kind of people do we see becoming witchfinders in this period? They're very varied.
2: The more prolific ones are mostly male. So that tends to go along with the fact that men had a more prominent role in society generally. You know, if you were a man, you could become a magistrate. You could go to university, so you could become a churchman. There were all sorts of opportunities open to you in enforcing justice and policing morals that weren't open to women in the same way. So, most of them tend to be men because of the nature of their other work and their social role. But some women were also involved in witch finding, and what they were employed to do was to search the bodies of people who were thought to be witches. So, if you had a woman suspect, it was thought improper for a male magistrate to search her body to look for signs that she might be a witch, and so. When would be employed to do it and you might be drawn into that in a variety of ways maybe you had some experience in midwifery maybe you were uh, you know trusted older woman in the community and matron as people would have called them and you were drawn in for that reason or maybe you just happened to be walking past an important court building that day and somebody called you in and said can you have a look at this you know you're you're a woman you have a look at this um so they could be male or female the majority were male but some women were
0: involved as well so you mentioned their Magistrates and courts. And before we go any further, perhaps it's worth just mentioning that the legal status of witchcraft at this time and how it changed
2: witchcraft is a crime throughout this period so 1542 is the the first time it pops up on the statute book for the english parliament nothing much seems to be done about it for a while until the 1560s though so it was dealt with by the church courts before then you know it was a sin in the the same way as fornication was a sin or you know any form of other activity that people considered to be wicked it was seen as something that you did which was kind of vaguely demonic possibly a little bit problematic needed to be looked at by the community but wouldn't get you thrown into jail wouldn't get you executed, at least in the British context, unless you committed treason with it, which was a completely different matter. But on the whole, people were regarded as as perfectly okay. And it wasn't until the 1560s that they start being prosecuted in large numbers and dragged through the criminal courts, the secular courts outside of the church. And that goes on throughout the whole of the 17th century.
0: I do want to return quickly to a figure that you mentioned before, Witchfinder General, which is a name that will echo in a lot of people's minds. uh, Matthew Hop, so he actually had a fairly short witch hunting career really in the 1640s as you said what do we know about him he only was active for about two years
2: and that's a astonishing legacy isn't it for such a short period of time he was quite young as well people often think of him especially because they've often seen the film Witchfinder general vincent price where he's he's an older man they often think oh you know he must be an older individual maybe maybe middle aged maybe older somebody with great standing in the community, you know, a big threatening figure like Vincent Price. But he was a young man and he was a sick man as well. He was ill during the whole period of time when he was looking for witches. And it's been argued that maybe that's part of why he's so afraid, why he's concerned that there are sinful people in the community that he has to root out, because perhaps he feels they're afflicting him. It's not entirely clear, but he dies in... in, 1647 at the end of the period of witch hunting so he's active 1645 to 1647 then he dies and we have a record of his burial in in the parish church in, in manningtree and mistley the the twin villages in which he lived in Essex and beyond that other people take up his legacy which is partly why it becomes so famous he writes a book about himself a short pamphlet saying I'm the Witchfinder general I'm really cool and other people get involved in his crusade against witches and they carry on for quite some period of time afterwards so he's massively influential but he's really quite a minor figure in some ways and quite a disempowered figure
0: I'm really intrigued by the fact that he wrote his own story down. As you say, he was a fairly minor figure, but he was clearly quite a good self-promoter. Do we have any sense that that is possibly a motivating factor in people getting involved in witch hunting?
2: Yeah, I think it is. I, I mean, it's always hard to know what people's motives were historically, isn't it? But... I would tend to hypothesise that they were people who wanted to be noticed and wanted to take a role in their community that maybe wasn't open to them in other ways, perhaps because of their youth or because they had beliefs that weren't quite sanctioned by the community. You know, some of them were a bit more godly than their neighbours. And I think they were kind of noisy people who, who wanted to play a role, you know. I think that's the sort of person that we're looking at. And I also think that they were often literate, they were often interested in promoting themselves beyond their local community too. So the reasons that we know some of them are because they wrote something about themselves or like the magistrate Brian Darcy, for example, they published an account of their witch-finding activities. Darcy's account, possibly written with a, with a collaborator, somebody who worked with him as a clerk, is over 100 pages long. So some of these people were really good self-publicists, Yeah.
0: That leaves a slightly bad taste in the mouth somehow, doesn't it? When we're thinking about the motivation behind what was often terrifying for those involved and involved a lot of persecution... Can you give us some of the other motivations that might have been behind which finding? It was clearly very diverse. People had different reasons for getting involved in it.
2: Yes, and we've been quite down on them so far, haven't we? You know, we've suggested they're noisy self-publicists, and we don't really like them very much. And that's perfectly fair, isn't it, given the horrible consequences of their actions. But at the same time, I'm also convinced that lots of them thought they were doing good. You know, they thought witches were a real threat. Witches are people who preyed on their neighbours, made their animals and children sick. They killed people. That's what people thought at the time. Why would a good person not want to become a witch hunter? You know, if you had religious views which stress that the world was full of spirits and there was God on one side with his good spirits and the devil on the other with his evil spirits and his witches, why would you not hunt them? So I think sometimes they did have good motives. The problem comes when in the accounts you read of the horrible cruelty that they inflicted on their victims and you think about the numbers of people who are put through torture or something which is akin to torture, imprisonment really horrible appearances in court where everybody you know pointed at them and regarded them as a criminal and then in many cases execution then you start thinking yes well they may have been well motivated but the results are appalling
0: were there any um, rewards for witch finders beyond simply recognition in a community was there any financial incentive
2: Yeah, sometimes there was. Um, Not usually initially, but later as people became regarded as experts. This is certainly something that happened to Matthew Hopkins, John Stern and some of the other people that worked with him on that Essex witch hunt that I was talking about. People would offer them money and they started to collect money. And yes, that could be quite lucrative. You know, they would turn up in a village and effectively demand a fee for finding witches in that community and the community would pay them. And even if it wasn't for a fee, there were still expenses to be covered and of course those could be stretched in various ways you know I had to ride from this place to that place and I had to stay at this inn and I had to have a very good dinner before my witch finding activities so there was that kind of incentive as well as the incentive towards being better known and and getting publicity. And in some of the Scottish cases where where people go around pricking suspected witches with with iron needles to see whether they had insensible spots on on their bodies, which might be the devil's mark, in some of those cases people became suspected as frauds quite quickly because they seemed to be very much focused on the rewards, including money. Um, And people
0: started to suspect them because of that. Do we have any evidence of downright charlatans really acting as witch finders? It does seem that in some of the cases of the witch
2: prickers there might be, you know, stories circulate of retractable needles and there's quite good evidence that people were making ridiculous claims about who was and who wasn't a witch. Sometimes a community in some of the Scottish cases would test the witch finder by putting forward somebody who they believed to be innocent and then the witch finder would say yes yes this person is a witch and that was regarded as a way of detecting them. But again you know you're never entirely certain with historical sources. Maybe they did believe that what they were doing was correct. Maybe it wasn't all about the money or it was only partly about the money and the fame maybe it was also about a genuine conviction that there were dangerous people in the community who had to be hunted out it's like any any form of scapegoating really there's usually a seed of of genuine concern and suspicion even if it then turns into what you know we still call
0: today a witch hunt And I think terms like the witch hunt and things like Witchfinder General, they do have a sense of this narrative in which Witchfinders are the the cartoon villain, really. But you're saying perhaps that's not quite fair. I think it
2: isn't quite fair, no. I I think in individual circumstances, you could be anywhere along that spectrum. And it's really difficult for historians to work out where they want to place you. You know, so much of it comes down to our own feelings about the events and the limited nature of the evidence that people leave behind them. You you can guess and you, you can really become quite angry with some of these people. You know, I find myself doing this and feeling this kind of righteous anger about Matthew Hopkins and what he did. You know, I don't care that he was young and, and, and sick and that his life was hard and that he lived in a difficult, you know, puritanical atmosphere and that he may have been acting for the best. What he did was terrible. And, I, you know, I feel that that's something that we we should comment on. I think it's important to feel these events as well as to describe them. But at the same time, hand on heart, I have to say that I may be doing him an injustice. How does he sell his own story? He sells it as an illustrated story to start with. So there's a big woodcut on the front of the, the pamphlet about him with him, you know, right in the centre of what would now be a photograph, posing as the Witchfinder General. And he's surrounded by witches and their familiars and he's pointing at them and showing how dangerous they are. So... It's the kind of filmic aspect to some of this. It's a multimedia experience, the selling of the story of a witch fighter, which is really fascinating. Um, You know, these days it would be a true crime documentary, wouldn't it? But then it was a printed pamphlet. So it's got a visual element. It's got a textual element because they then write the story and in his case he chooses to do a kind of question and answer format which again is you know communications genius. Who wouldn't want to read this? You can even you know as you take the pamphlet down to the pub and read it you can ask each other the questions and you can you know you can play the part of the witch finder if you want which is an alluring prospect isn't it? So he does it as question and answer you know the the questioner is saying why did you do this? How did you learn about witches? Are you sure you're not doing this for prophet so what are the what are the key signs of of being a witch and he is answering in his own voice you know this is how I learned about it I didn't have to travel very far to find witches he says you know in a sense he doesn't quite say this but he's saying they found me they were in my community already I just I just happened to discover them so he does it in, in a way which is very accessible um, and very readable and very sort of performable, if you like. And then in the case of some of the longer documents, it's a sort of long read, if you like. Um, they they feel like blogs almost. Some of these these accounts of of witch finders, you know, this day I did this and I went to talk to Goody so and so about her witchcraft and she said this and here's the document to prove it. And oh, you look, you can read her her own words. So they're very immersive accounts. Actually, you can see why witch finders become so famous because they're super publicists.
0: Still to come on the History Extra podcast.
2: The ways that people could be drawn into what I've called accidental witch finding make me think this could, something could happen to any of us, really. So I think we should consider them as, as fellow human beings who made terrible mistakes, and really none of us are immune from that.
0: were witchfinders finders essentially working off guidebooks written by other witch finders, or what other texts might they have been consulting to conduct their work? Quite often, yes, they were. And it's kind of
2: disappointing, isn't it, to see. Printing used in that way, you know, just like the technologies of of the internet and social media now, this great idea which allows us all to communicate with each other is taken and turned into something which is about persecution and hatred. That's what happens with print, just as it's now happened with social media. Um, So when they use print in this way, they expect it to be read and they expect some of their publications to be manuals of witch finding. So yes, they expect other people and other communities to go out and hunt witches. And we know some of the pamphlets about witches were read by some of the witch finders because they mentioned them. And then later on in history, we find other people citing those witch finders and saying, well, you know, just like Matthew Hopkins did, or just like Brian Darcy did, this is what I did. And look, I found witches. So it's a depressing story really of people using a new communications technology to spread
0: hatred and, and fear. So I wonder if we could talk about a few of the details of these uh, witch-finding manuals or the techniques that witchfinders would have used. What were some of the weapons at their disposal? With Matthew Hopkins it's something really
2: simple and he may not have originated this idea himself but out of his community comes an idea which comes to be referred to as walking and watching. And that means that you you capture your suspect, you know, you arrest them and you shut them up in a place, perhaps their own home or perhaps the magistrate's house somewhere, which is, is private. And you make them walk up and down. And this sounds like a fairly simple sort of thing, but you keep them walking up and down for hours and you don't let them sleep and you don't let them sit down. And to us, of course, that sounds like torture. And that is a psychological method of breaking people down and getting them to agree with the the story that you're putting to them, which is essentially, you're a witch, aren't you? You're going to tell us about your witchcraft, aren't you? And eventually the suspect does that. But that sort of technique wasn't considered to be torture at the time. What they thought that they were doing, the witch finders, was checking to make sure that witches could be seen at all times and they couldn't meet with their familiar So the familiar is like a little demonic animal that the witch is supposed to possess and it might come to them and fortify them in some way. So maybe the familiar would give them a charm which would enable them to to keep silent. Maybe the familiar would give them some sort of magical power which would enable them not to confess. So the idea was that if you walked and you watched the witch, eventually familiars would show up and you'd have the evidence that you needed and then you could get the witch to confess and, and you could convict them. So that was one technique. There are other physical ones as well. There are tests to see whether people are witches or not. And one of them that was quite popular was to throw people into water. Maybe you would tie them up and and do so. So there was a special technique for tying their thumbs and, and toes across their body and then chucking them into the water. This was intended to make sure that they didn't swim in a conventional way, although of course they might float nevertheless. If they sank, they were innocent. As I'm sure
0: people know, if they floated, they were guilty. What was the thinking behind that? What was the logic? that explained that
2: it was thought that because water was the material in which people were baptized that it had some holy property the church did not sanction this belief i have to say this was a superstitious belief that that ordinary people outside of the church seemed to have held but some magistrates went along with it and and they sanctioned the throwing of witches into water and it wasn't intended to drown them But it was intended to test them. And of course, some people did die during the course of the ordeal out of shock or because they'd just, you know, inhaled too much water. But you were supposed to pull them out and then they would confess and then you would drag them off to to prison. So it could become part of the formal process of arresting and imprisoning which magistrates would
0: get involved sometimes. You mentioned that walking people up and down was not seen as torture. Was torture allowed to try and interrogate witches? It
2: wasn't in Britain, or at least in England. On the continent, it often was allowed, particularly in inquisitorial settings. So when an inquisitor from the Catholic Church was involved, there were specific kinds of torture prescribed that they were allowed and indeed encouraged to use. And they would involve kind of formal torture mechanisms like the rack, which people might have heard of stretching people's limbs and joints. But in England, so in the case of Matthew Hopkins, our famous witch finder general, for example, who invented this walking and watching technique with his friends, as far as we can tell, he did it because torture wasn't allowed. You weren't allowed to torture victims. The law did protect them. Nevertheless, of course, we can see there are ways around it.
0: What are some of those ways around it? I'm thinking particularly of stuff that we might categorise today as um, psychological torture, but also using, for example, unreliable witness testimony. One of their favourite things to do was to question the children of suspects, and they would be very
2: young children. You know, we have records, and some of the witch finders proudly presented these records to the public, of children as young as seven or eight or nine being questioned. And, of course, if somebody says to them, is your, you know, is your mother a witch...? They might well say yes, and if there's a story about some fluffy demonic animals and it's all quite fun and it sounds harmless and they don't really see why this would be a problem and they're being talked to by, you know, an important gentleman from their community who they've been taught to respect and to agree with and to say, you know, nod and smile and say yes, sir, when this person asks them something. Well, of course they're going to to go along with those suggestions, aren't they? So questioning children was was quite a popular one. And also anybody else who was unreliable would be in the same boat, really. You know, you look at some of the suspects and they're, they're older people. Some of the things they say are quite incredible and they seem to be off on a kind of journey of fantasy of some sort. So if there was somebody in a community who was perhaps delusional or mentally ill in some way or perhaps... You know, they, they were prey to dementia, for example. These also would be
0: used as witnesses because they could be persuaded to tell stories of witchcraft. And what about other methods of, of psychological torture that were used on the suspected witches? It's quite easy to get people to confess to things. I think that's one of the first things to say.
2: In a sense, you don't need to, to torture them. You just need to keep asking them the same question. And you need to do it from a position of power. It's about relative levels of power. So male-female is one of those those differences. You know, if a man is asking you questions in in early modern England, you tend to do what he says. If he's a man of high class and he's well-dressed and, you know, he's got a role in local judicial structures and he's the son of so-and-so somebody then again, you're inclined to go along with him. So there was a lot of pressure. People would find themselves locked up and repeatedly questioned. They'd also find sometimes that their neighbours would come and, you know, bang on the door of the cell or poke their fingers through the bars and ask them again and again, did you bewitch my wife? Did you bewitch my child? hurl insults at them. The process of of arrest was not that kindly. You know, you would be dragged out of your house by local constables and and taken off to the big house for questioning by the magistrate. And then you'd end up in the village lockup. It really didn't take a lot quite often.
0: You mentioned earlier um, the use of women in strip searching and, and pricking. I wonder if you could just explain the logic behind that process. This is another method of putting psychological pressure on people. So stripping them of their clothes,
2: strips them of some of their defences and and their dignity and starts to treat them as an object. So what people were looking for were demonic marks or teats. Familiars were thought to suckle on the bodies of witches. They they would take blood from the witch as a reward for doing the harm that the witch had asked them to do. And if you had a familiar suckling on you, you would also have a teat, could be identified. So what the searchers of of the naked bodies of witches were looking for was a teat or a mark that was perhaps insensible or perhaps stood out in some way. But, you know, they could quite often find something that was just a wart um, or some kind of mark on the body, some sort of freckle or mole A skin tag, something like that. And having that kind of mark identified and having people pointing at it as you stood there naked and shivering with your neighbours stood around you must have been utterly terrifying for people and very likely to predispose them to confess.
0: I wonder if there are any particularly interesting or notable cases that you think um, it's interesting to unpick to, to better understand the process of British witch-hunting.
2: I've got two favourites, which I've referred to already, because I'm, I'm writing about them or have written about them, really, and I think they're utterly fascinating. The first one is is the Witchfinder General, and I'm working on a project at the moment to look again at those records of the Witchfinder General, Matthew Hopkins, and see what else we can learn specifically about the people on whom he peaked as a Witchfinder. So I want to know more about those. That's a really interesting case for people to look at, and it's worth looking at, at books about that. There's one by Malcolm Gaskill called Witchfinders, which is a good introduction, for instance. And then there's Brian Darcy, the other chap I mentioned. They're both from Essex. There's a lot of witch finding in Elizabethan, Jacobean and Civil War Essex. Brian Darcy was active in the 1680s and he questioned a lot of people across five different Essex villages, two of whom were subsequently executed. And he confesses during the course of telling us about his witch finding that he lied to them. He he promised them favours that he didn't grant them. He questioned their small children. He used methods that he'd picked up from other witch-finding manuals. So like we were talking about earlier, he'd had manuals that had been given to him of how to do this and he'd thought, oh, this is good. I can do this in my village too. So Brian Darcy's another really good one. I'm, and I've written a book about him called The Witches of St. Ozith, and that's going to be out later this year. So if people want to check out those stories, they're such good stories, they're so interesting and they're so revealing about the nature of witch-finding.
0: Do we get any sense from um, the accounts of... Hopkins and Darcy, what kind of men they were, how they saw the world. Were they paranoid? Were they delusional? Were they meticulous and organised? What do their accounts tell us about them as people?
2: I think with Hopkins, yes, I think he probably was delusional in some way. If I had to put my hand on my heart and say... He he describes being woken up in the night by hearing voices outside. And okay, maybe that was his neighbours. But why on earth would he conclude that there was a meeting of witches taking place outside his house? It seems like he was already looking for something like that. And he's very driven, clearly. You know, he goes on these long journeys to find witches in other places communities. And that seems to me quite obsessional. So him, I'd, I'd probably put into the category of somewhat delusional and paranoid and, and obsessive. But Darcy, I think he's a bit different. There's a real ordinariness to Darcy. He's rather a pompous man. He does some very dubious things like lying to his, his suspects. And bullying them. But I think he thinks of himself as a solid citizen who's just doing his job. You know, he's a magistrate. He's employed to question people who are accused by others, If you know, be they witches or thieves or murderers. He's got to question them. It's part of his job. So I think he's a little bit different. He's a bit more like the everyman who accidentally became a witch finder. He then gets very into it and very obsessive and he's clearly very keen on publicising himself. So not a particularly admirable
0: character, I don't think. I don't think I would have liked Brian Darcy, but not a monster. Looking back on all of this, it's obviously a really complicated picture at play in terms of motivations and in terms of outcomes. But how do you think that we should think about these figures of the witch finder or the witch hunter if we don't want to just default to this villainous caricature?
2: Mm, I think we should look at them Quite sympathetically in some ways, but that also sort of implies that we might look to see ways that we're behaving like them. You know, one of the things that really bothers me in looking at these accounts is how easy it is for communities to turn against each other and identify scapegoats. How easy it is for hatred to get a, a, a root in communities so where people start hating each other and, and picking on each other. And, and the ways that people could be drawn into what I've called accidental witch finding make me think this some. Something could happen to any of us, really. So I think we should consider them as as fellow human beings who made terrible mistakes, and really none of us are immune from that.
0: That was Marion Gibson. You can read a feature by Marion on Witchfinders in the March issue of BBC History magazine. That's on sale now and also includes features on digging for victory in the Second World War, Stonehenge and Nixon's Cold War mission to China. Thank you for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley.